all cities have personalities. Tell us about what it means to you to be Detroit born and bred, and what were the traits that were ingrained in you that have stuck with you over the years? People love to say it's a blue collar town, and I, I like to, to think of this as just a hard working town. The good old bad boys, Detroit Pistons. I think that embodied a lot of what most people from Detroit think of themselves, and that there's a fair amount of grace and grit in how we're raised and reared in that town. I think that we love hard, we play hard, and we work hard. It is certainly one of the, the cities that continues to stay focused on pride in craftsmanship. A creative concept that evolves after countless discussions with the bodybuilders from Fisher. If we're a part of the same team, we go to bat for you. And if we're actually on opposite sides of the fence, we're going to go down swinging. And I think that that's, that's been a moniker of the city in, in whatever way you want to look at it. Welcome to Great Minds, and we have uh, an extraordinary special guest today. I refer to him, of course, as Judge Alvin Bowles. Uh, Alvin is the uh, VP of Global Marketing Solutions and Partnerships for Facebook, and is someone I've known, I guess, Alvin, we got to be coming up on, what, 10 years at least? At least. At least. Well, uh, one, thank you for having me, uh, as everyone knows you, as Lord Matt uh, Schechner, um, one of the industry pillars for what is the advertising um, sort of media landscape. And so I appreciate you you having me on today and um, just, just wonderful to get a chance to catch up with you and talk to you during this crazy time. So when I think of you, Alvin, I always think of you as sort of like a frontline warrior guy. You know, there are folks that we know that you say, that, you know, guy or gal is sitting in the bleachers or that guy or gal is sitting in a luxury box. And then there are the people that are on the field you know, on the front lines. And you come from a family that was frontline warriors. Your dad, uh, who passed recently, was a doctor. Your mom, who's still with us, a nurse. View things through their eyes. What would your dad say as a guy that was on the front lines if he saw what was going on today with the corona crisis? I think he'd be confused um, around what was sort of being depicted um, in the media and by government, by government, but I also think that he would also pick up his shield and stand a post because that's what frontline folks do. Um, you know, my dad was a pulmonary physician for many years as a part of the Henry Ford system, and my mom, you know, registered nurse as you mentioned. And I think that what what they would say is that we can debate how we got here later. What we need to focus on is getting a handle on how to combat what the entire sort of world economy and society is dealing with and treat patients with care. You know, this is no one's fault that that gets this terrible disease, um, you know, some of which people have contracted because they've had to go to work or they've had to be a healthcare professional and treat people or they've had to actually focus on these essential jobs. You know, when you think about the people that are delivering the packages to our homes and delivering food and, and you know, picking up, you know, your, your, your garbage and, you know, these normal things that we all take for granted, those are the people that are at significant risk. And those people get sick and those people need to be treated. And so 
I think that what they would suggest is that everyone should be treated equal in, in a crisis such as this. And we can spend time doing the political sort of, you know, gymnastics that we seem to keep talking about who's at fault and what are we going to do and who are we going to be held accountable um, with really just focusing on care. If we spent more time thinking about how do we actually treat individuals? How do we get people the, the equipment that they need? And how do we focus on giving people the space that are working on uh, vaccines and sorts of treatment options, the space in order to do so and resources to do so um, we're going to get through this stronger, smarter, and with the ability to be able to combat this, should this come back? Picking up on one word that you used a few times, that word care. And when you care, when you're caring for others, what you're doing is you're connecting with other people. Yes. And at Facebook right now, you have become an even more vital conduit connecting people all over the world. And in particular... I know the company has jumped two feet into the deep end of the pool to try to help small and medium-sized businesses in particular go forward and keep their doors open during this challenging time. Talk about what the company is doing to help people keep the doors open and the lights on. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, Ever since COVID-19 was declared as a global public health emergency, I think it was around January, We've been working with health officials, governments, NGOs, and others around the world to really combat this crisis. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. There are a lot of great organizations that are doing, you know, God's work. Then you talk about healthcare professionals um, and the people that are on the front lines. And, um, you know, there was that, 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 that tragic story of the ER physician in New York yeah, who, who, yeah. who took her own life, which I think is just such a sad and travesty, you know, it's just such a travesty. We all would love to sort of go back to some level of normalcy, but, the more we actually adhere to the medical advice of you know, Dr. Fauci and others like him, um, I think the, the faster we're going to get to a manageable side of this and you know, rushing it just doesn't work. It's like rushing back from an injury. Every time somebody try to, tries to cheat their rehab from an Achilles or this, that, and the yeah, other, get, get you, hurt again. you get hurt again. It, 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 is, it is just tried and true. It happens every single time. And, you know, we need some muscle memory around this because this may or may not be the last time we have to do this. You know, we're investing in technologies and programs to support primarily small businesses. And we uh, announced a hundred million dollar grant program that was intended to be able to focus on providing resources with no strings and potentially even ad credits for 25 to 30,000 businesses. And we've also done a similar program for news organizations that we believe that local papers, local radio, and others uh, are more important than ever to be able to actually pre present information that people need. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, it's oftentimes in, in, in the crisis that we see the best in humanity, sort of people and businesses using technology in remarkable ways to connect. And we certainly appreciate the responsibility that people are entrusting 
Facebook and, and the other tools that we have in our portfolio to build community with one another. Um, I think that, you know, there's so many times that we've th thought of, well, how I know speaking with my mother and using FaceTime and Messenger and WhatsApp and Zooms and Skypes and things of that nature are, are really important to make sure that people feel that level of human connection. And we take that responsibility extremely seriously. Um, you know, in addition to the cash and, 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 and being able to provide people with very specific resources because ideas don't pay the bills, we are focused on businesses and providing them solutions to be able to connect with their customers in real and accelerated ways. So whether that be retail entities bringing their businesses online or allowing individuals to be able to test and iterate what's the best way to be able to galvanize a message to people, whether it be a buying a product or just connecting to individuals um, for whatever purposes a, a client or partner may need, we're, we're just appreciative of being able to be a part of that conversation. And we just think that there's an enormous amount of responsibility and we take it extremely seriously. Are you seeing different things? You have a global remit. Are you seeing small and medium-sized businesses respond differently, have different needs? Is there anything going on in one part of the world that's not happening somewhere else? Yeah, I think that um, it's a really interesting point. I think that because of how this crisis has unfolded, we're seeing, um, and not surprisingly, so many innovative things happening in in APAC and other developing uh, places as well. Um, you know, conversational commerce is an interesting one where you're able to connect businesses to people by just a communication you know, you see all the bots that come up on websites when you're ordering something or, or, or what have you, or at least allowing people to be able to, to converse um, with businesses in ways that they haven't been able to do so previously. That's an interesting trajectory for everyone. Um, you know, commerce overall is just a theme for everyone. You know, everyone's talking about how do you actually, you know, bridge this on, offline business, you know, sort of trajectory with an online um, opportunity that allows people to be able to connect with customers either in their target areas or areas beyond whom they believed um, they were possible to reach. And it's been really interesting to be able to see. And we're trying to turn those things into interesting and frictionless um, executions where individuals can just be able to develop relationships with companies that they haven't necessarily had previously. So conversational commerce for me is the one thing that I've seen significantly increase over time. Um, you know, the other is this, there's been a significant rise in obviously the consumer packaged good companies. I mean, there's so many folks that, um, whether it be the cleaning products or what have you, the, the amount of products that people need in their homes because they're spending more time there is significant. And individuals are trying to figure out, well, one, how do I actually connect to those individuals more significantly and more quickly? And also, what else might I need from an e-learning perspective? As we think about it, I'm a parent, as many people on this, this line will be, uh, you know, are as well. E-learning is, is, is something that is new for many of us. Our kids are probably more inept uh, you know, you know, th th than we are. Um, being able to actually focus on taking these tools that we've been utilizing for entertainment and use them for education. So e-learning platforms, it, we've seen a significant rise in that. And so just like this podcast, which may have, we might have done at one of your conferences, Matt, uh, or Zooms or things of that nature, 
being able to actually turn everything into an e-learning or virtual execution has been a significant rise that we've seen. I want to go back to a part of your career some time ago when you were doing a different kind of connecting. And I want to talk about I'm going to make you smile. You ready? Yeah, of course. I want to, I want to talk about Black Diamonds Entertainment. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, you just brought me back. There you go. You know, I went to University of Michigan, graduated, and then decided that I wanted to experience something beyond uh, what was going on in the city of Detroit. And so I was lucky enough to get a job on Wall Street at J.P. Morgan. This is before it was called J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm just dating myself. And I really enjoyed the work. In fact, in many respects, I'm using a lot of those foundational skill set in terms of understanding how you know financial models work, how the financial markets work, building my own forecasting models and things of that nature. So while I've turned myself into a marketer and a salesperson, at the end of the day, you know, the foundation that I start with is financial, you know, and, and business acumen. And at the time, I didn't really know anybody. I mean, I was a new dude from Detroit, didn't really know anybody. This is before tremendous amount of email, not everybody had a cell phone. And I met up with a number of individuals um, that were young uh, black professionals. And we decided to start a company that was focusing on bringing entertainment experiences um, to professionals of color, irrespective of industry. And so there was a couple of groups that were around around that time, a notable one, um, in addition to ours was the Prasad brothers, a group of four brothers, uh, excuse me, three brothers and a couple of cousins that were doing the same thing. And there was just a moment in time. And this was Puffy had like Justin's restaurant and Jay-Z was starting, you know, his musical career. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of energy in the city where individuals were experiencing new music. And it's, it's just the sort of golden age of hip hop when you're talking about the, the mid nineties. And a lot of folks were, were really flocking to New York. And I was living in, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn at the time, really trying to connect individuals around just fellowship. And so in many respects, you know, I've been trying to connect people for many, many years. And there's just so many good memories and so many great relationships. And you parlayed that entrepreneurial venture into a gig at Sony Music. I did, and it was interesting. So, you know, it's one of those things where you never really know who's watching, as I, I love to tell kids, you know, that ask me for advice. It's, you know, not always be on, but just understand that people are always watching. And that certainly is focused on now, since everybody's looking at folks' social media, and that I was working at J.P. Morgan, you know, involved in some of the the nightlife and, and, and sort of party promoting areas. And I met a, an executive recruiter who suggested that I was in the wrong business and suggested that I try to, you know, take, you know, what I was learning at my company and combining that with what I had learned in this sort of entrepreneurial venture and take that to an industry that would probably give me more sort of personal joy. And I ended up starting off in the finance department at Sony Music um, in business planning and analysis and looking at foreign you know, credit risk and exchange. So I was able to marry some of what I was learning at JP Morgan with an industry that was actually far more interesting to me. And Sony at the time um, had the Epic Music label, Columbia, 
um, and a number of other affiliate labels and some of the biggest names in the business. Um, you know, you've got Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, Mariah Carey, Gloria Stefan. Um, and, and, and it was just wonderful to be able to, to, to be a part of the company at the time. Sony, and then I know you went to, you know, Time Warner shortly after, the record business, that they really, you know, completely lost their way. I mean, you look at when they passed and blew the hardware and opened up the door and Steve Jobs stormed through uh, and took all that business. I mean, they really, really blew it. So funny story is, so I, I, I have two stints at Sony. So I was at Sony right after JP Morgan and I left and I um, went to business school and I went to, um, to Harvard Business School. And then I came back to Sony and at different capacity, I was director of business development and working for the CFO of the company, this gentleman, great guy named Kevin Kelleher, who probably is still there. And we really were struggling with, you know, what to do at this time because CDs were diminishing at the time. Napster and a lot of the free music services were eating into the market share that the that the companies were dealing with. And not that they're similar from what happened with YouTube and 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 large companies suggesting this was stealing of intellectual property. And so at the time, I think that you know we thought, well, we own what was that time mobile music. It was the Sony Walkmans and the Discmans and things of that nature. And so Sony, because it had a hardware division, felt pretty confident that they could come up with something that actually made sense. And we passed on an opportunity to be able to be participatory in a joint venture partnership with Steve Jobs around this new thing called an iPod. This is before even an iPhone. In this whole new digital music revolution, there is no market leader. There are small companies like Creative and Sonic Blue, and then there's some large companies like Sony that haven't had a hit yet. They haven't found the recipe. No one has really found the recipe yet for digital music. And we think not only can we find the recipe, but we think the Apple brand is going to be fantastic because people trust the Apple brand to get their great digital electronics from. And I think that we were so arrogant about our position in the marketplace you could now hindsight is twenty twenty, but you could see how individuals were apprehensive about disrupting themselves um, because they were just so focused on what was going on in the next three months, the next quarter, the next month, the next release, um, and not realizing that the consumption of this content had changed. You know, something similar, I'm sure, with 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 Netflix has a similar story. They ran around the block asking everybody for. A, a a partnership and now they're eating everybody's lunch. And I think that, you know, the thing that was for music, which I think is still to this day, is that there's an emotional connection associated with it, which is why you have so many successful businesses like Spotify, Pandora, you know, Apple Music and others, and that people still want music. You know, music helps define people who they are. It also helps connect people. And, you know, that more than anything else probably is an identifier of who you are as a person. When somebody says, what are you listening to? Or what are your top five artists that tells you something about them? And I just think that we missed it at the time. And so, you know, I always remember those things. I was, you know, a young impressionable person out of business school and I'll never forget some of those meetings. And I try to remind myself of that now when some young person comes to me with an idea 
that 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 suggests we may need to disrupt ourselves and the apprehension that most people have that are sitting at the top of the food chain is that nah not right now that doesn't make a lot of sense i try to remind myself of being that kid in the corner you know the, the corner chair of that conference room taking notes and saying you know let's not miss the next wave of these things because you know people follow consumers and that's where consumers were going. This is one of those things like Wayne Gretzky says, you know, go skate where the puck is going. And missing that was a huge – and the company never recovered, right? I mean, they're, they're a shell of what they were, and I think they still are important in many respects. But, you know, their dominance in music, you know, I don't think will ever be revisited. One of the things that you launched – was a number of brands globally when you were at BET. Mm -hmm. And I know you also leaned in and launched AOL Black Voices. So I want to talk about both and you can decide where we go first. You know, Black Voices was something that existed before I got there. Um, and it was small and it certainly grew underneath um, – Myself and a woman by the name of Janet Rollet, who's a dear friend, um, who was editor in chief um, and sort of GM of of this, and a gentleman by the name of Nick Charles, um, who was also a, a a great editorial partner in this regard. And what we're able to do, and I think that this is one of the jewels that that um, has continued to be highlighted with sort of the Huff Post version of that today, is that targeted media and how you package things for very specific niche audiences also have mass appeal. And, you know, as publisher, it was my job to be able to package that for advertisers and showcasing not only the importance of an urban, um, you know, consumer or an African-American consumer, um, but that there was mass appeal to the types of content that we were actually pulling together and that it wasn't just for, you know, the demographics that we usually buy, you know, media in. So everything from some of the concert series that we did with AOL Music to some of the things that we partnered with, with historically black colleges and universities and highlighting the things that were happening on campus. It was very pioneering at that time. This is the beginning when every, everything was meant to be showcased around a television experience that you could find online. Um, for all of us old folks, AOL was ubiquitous with the web, and I felt it was important to ensure that individuals that looked like me were also being serviced by the types of content that they were getting, uh, and not just entertainment, but also hard news. And that's where I think Nick and, and Janet provided really, really great balance and some of the things that we were trying to accomplish from a financial perspective, but also making sure that we covered stories that were important to our community. Um, no different than what a local newspaper would. And it was wonderful. It was great. And I think that, you know, I did that for a couple of years. Um, you know, I was at Time Warner Corporate for a while working for a gentleman named Mark Darcy, who is now running global business marketing at Facebook and an esteemed colleague I transferred to AOL um, after a short while at Time Warner Corporate, and it was just a great run. So it was great. I really enjoyed the work, and it was a bridge to getting to BET. 
because we found ourselves partnering with BET.com in many different ways. And it led to me sort of uh, joining, this is BT, and I spent about five years there, four and a half years, as the Senior Vice President of Integrated Marketing and Branded Entertainment. I'm not sure exactly what they call that these days. But a great guy named John Shea was pioneering that work at MTV and showcasing the ability to focus on branded entertainment to a youthful audience. And we tried our hand at that at at BET. And I worked with some great people. Um, Denmark West, who was running digital at the time, Scott Mills, who was um, one of the senior leaders there, who's actually president now, and uh, a number of individuals, most notably Lewis Carr and Ray Goldburn, who are sort of industry pillars in representing um, sales from a, an, uh, an agency and the value of the black consumer. And it was just great to be able to actually focus on that, you know, with those folks. We still work with them to this day in many strategic capacities. And, you know, there was the idea of being able to launch shows. And so we ended up taking brands and creating different types of shows and or branded entertainment to be able to showcase advertising in a different way for the audiences that we served. And I mean, I learned so much from that in, in, in terms of understanding how we evaluate the efficacy of advertising and brand and entertainment and how you actually create 360 you know, programs, um, which honestly, some of these models are still being used to this day. You know, the work that I did with, you know, Janine Liburd, and actually I worked with Janet Rollet again, because she was actually CMO at BET at that time. And we just had a lot of fun. We, we, we were honestly making a tremendous amount of stuff up as we went. And, you know, I really learned um, the sort of value, the, the value of evaluating programs after they finished and understanding how to improve upon the great things that we were able to, to get done and uh, deprecating things that actually didn't work. The population of our country now, between the black population, the Hispanic population, and a Near, very near number of years, we're going to be more than 50% non-white as a country. Yes. You know, that's on the horizon. Have things gotten better in our industry and industry in general? You know, I think that, you know, the answer is it depends. And I think that there's, that if I had to give a quick answer, I would say yes. Um is it where we want it to be? No. And I think that this is a journey, not a destination. You know, I hosted the very first ad color meeting when I was publisher of AOL Black Voices and big shout out to Tiffany R. Warren, dear friend and partner. And she definitely is, you know, deserves to be on that Mount Rushmore of people that are holding the flag for diversity in our industry. Um, and I'm just happy to be able to support those efforts. I think that the end of the day, we've actually done, I think, a much better job of focusing on diversity, where I think that we have a tremendous amount of work to go is in inclusion. And so everybody loves to use this analogy, and I'll use the same one. Diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And so there's lots of different people in industry, you know, interest around diversity and inclusion, and it means something different to a whole lot of different people. Um, there's gender diversity, there's, you know, sexual orientation diversity, there's cultural diversity, there's diversity of thought. And, and I think that 
it is the it has muddied the waters a bit in terms of diversity and inclusion is defined by a lot of the companies um, differently. You know, the way I think about this is to your point, diversity is a business imperative. And given the fact that you're talking about, you know, if you're under a certain age, you're more likely to be a person of color than not. Uh, you're more likely to be, you know, we're at this point where 50% of our country is, is certainly, you know, uh, women. And, you know, even from a Facebook perspective, the majority of the next 3 billion people that will come onto our platform will come from countries and continents of color, period, full stop. And so as a result of that, we've got to make sure that our company and efforts and, and executives and partnerships are reflective of that reality. And I think that we need to be held accountable for that. I think that we've done a really good job of being transparent about what we do. We have a diversity report that we put out every single year. I think Maxine Williams, our chief diversity officer, is doing an exemplary job in highlighting this as an important thing for us to deal with. But I also think that there is no quick fix. This is hard work. And I do think that there's an expectation that, yep, I do a couple of programs, I hire a couple of people, I can do an HBCU recruiting program, and that's it. Or I can put a person of color on my board and or my executive ranks, and they're going to speak for everyone. That's not enough. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, we're still dealing with, you know, a, an economic and information and socioeconomic, I just call it socioeconomic disparity amongst people of color in the general market. And we need to continue to stay vigilant around that. And it's going to take businesses um, with courage to be able to continue to do so and support these organizations. I mean, that for me is one of the fears of this pandemic and that, you know, some of these efforts, you mentioned Ad Color, there's so many other ones as well. Um, the Executive Leadership Council, the Council of Urban Professionals, um, a number of bespoke things that are happening across the board, um, including our Asian American and, you know, Latinx um, sisters and brothers, that we need to continue to support these organizations. You know, diversity has become big business. And we, we see that there's lots of different entities that are focused on um, uh, reports and conferences and things of that nature. But I do believe that the accountability um, aspect of this thing is going to be extremely important. Um, and I think that that's where the transparency piece comes in. I'm proud to work for a company that, that says that the job is only 1% done. We are where we are, and we are endeavoring to do much better. And we're not looking for any excuses. We're not looking for any, you know, any explanations as to why we're not where we want to be. But we are looking for, you know, purity of intent in the partnerships that we actually embark upon to help us get there, to have people tell us the truth about did we get it wrong. Um, and I definitely feel an enormous amount of responsibility, although diversity is not any part of my title or set of responsibilities formally, you know, I look forward to partnering with Maxine and her team and many other senior executives um, around some of this great work that needs to be get done because there's also a business imperative to this. Um, being able to do well in this respective area will actually have a great business outcome for us and for our partners and for our consumers. And so I'm happy to be participatory in this regard. And I think that continuing to push 
the needle in this is really important. And I appreciate the forum that we've always had, you know, with your constituency, Matt, you know, at Advertising Week, you always provide not just a diversity panel or a diversity track, but diversity of thought and participation on all the conversations that you're putting out there. And I think that's a really, really important thing um, for the industry to see. So I thank you for that. Yeah, well, listen, it's... For us, I think similar to you, it's just sort of hardwired into who we are. And, you know, but it's also very much, as you say, about business. And, you know, you want to connect to all your customers, not just some of them. I agree. You're coming up now on five years at Facebook. Wow. Has it been that long? I think so. I think so. And and your responsibilities have grown. You are on, uh, you know, an absolute juggernaut. Talk about what that experience has been like. You are, you know, in a pretty unique position in a catbird seat right now, as I think it was the great Ernie Harwell, I believe, <laughs> used to say for the Detroit Tigers. Yes, I so, like that. I like so what's the, what's the view from the catbird seat? You know, it's really interesting to say that because, you know, I know what it's like to not be that. I think that the bridge between the BET experience and me being at Facebook was an entrepreneurial venture that I was involved with, you know, a SoftBank Capital funded company that was Grab Media, which is when I met you, uh, Matt. Yeah, sure. And we were a video syndication business that was fledgling but mighty. And we were fortunate enough to find an exit at the end of that, that wonderful experience. And I remember what it was like to struggle to make payroll. I remember what it was like to be a psychiatrist and a CEO uh, for employees that needed to make decisions, hard decisions around how they were going to feed their families based on what we were able to provide. And so it's actually made me a very humble participant in this, you know, large juggernaut, you know, called Facebook. You know, I will tell you that we take our responsibility extremely seriously and um, we take our responsibility to the community or the global community extremely seriously. Um, You know, not just by giving grants and, and, and programs, which by the way, is extremely, extremely difficult to administer. And, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for our colleagues that are trying to find an orderly way in which to do so, um, because this isn't core to what we do, but we do think it's important to be able to support um, all constituencies that have been, that have found, you know, comfort in our platform. Um, but I also think that it, it is something to be grateful for. I'm grateful for a company that is supporting its employees by working from home with the tools that we have. I'm grateful that we're able to still conduct business. I think that I'm much, I, I'm, I'm probably most grateful for the fact that people have found that our platform is able to provide utility um, for their business lives as well as find joy, whether it be WhatsApp or Instagram or Messenger or Facebook or what have you. Um, these, these tools are likely to have an impact on your life in some sort of way. Um, and while we think that there's an opportunity to continue to improve all the things that we do, we love the fact that these are all free services. You know, we, we, 
we are an advertising enabled entity and there is a democratization of use for the things that we actually are putting out there in the world. You do not have to have uh, a tremendous amount of resources to use our tools. Um, and we think that that is a wonderful thing um, to be able to, to offer to the world. Um, we need to continue to do more. Um, you know, the job is 1% done and, but it is, it is something that, that, that we do understand. And like, we're seeing businesses every day struggle with, um, tough decisions. And, you know, unfortunately not every small and medium business and large business will be here at the end of this pandemic. What we hope is that if we can provide, whether it be resources, um, ideas, um, uh, connectivity, um, the ability to just elicit some sort of joy in, in, a, in, in any given day by leveraging these platforms to connect with people while folks are sheltering in place, God willing, um, then it's been a good day. Then it's been a good day and we've, we've done our best to, to do our job. And, you know, not to sound hokey, but it's like this actually starts to, to translate as to the mission that we keep talking about. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I don't know that people thought as much of us um, as we may have thought of ourselves and that we're trying to really focus on tools that help people, you know, bring the world together and, and, and build their own community. And it's evidenced sort of every day that, that we're able to, to, to help a partner deliver a solution, you know, and I'll, and I'll leave you with, you know, last weekend, you know, my friend, uh, Derek Jones, um, D nice hosted a Instagram live fundraiser for historically black colleges and universities to commemorate the United Negro College Fund's 76th birthday. And in you know just a couple of hours, a few hundred thousand dollars was raised and was given to these kids and administrators and faculty to help them celebrate something that's been taken away from them in graduation. You know, this culmination um, you know, in a in a in a in a in a kid's life that we we all remember for those of us that that were fortunate enough to go to college. And it was wonderful to be able to see our platform used in that way. We didn't make any money from that. And, and, and you know, we, we certainly amplified it and, and gave money ourselves. And, but just be able to see the, the platform used in a way that was actually for good um, was just really heartwarming. And I was just proud to be a part of it. And so those are the types of efforts that we continue to see every day. And it's great to be able to support um, the community in whatever way we can. Fantastic. All right. I think that's a great ender. It, it was. And I'm just riffing, man. I'm, you know. Yeah. Just, this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Lainey was doing her job, of course, you know, and I said, I don't really have any questions to send you in advance because I, I don't know what they are. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.